From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. President Trump will nominate Sean Manasco to be the next Undersecretary of the Air Force. Manasco is the Air Force's Assistant Secretary for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. Now he's been acting Undersecretary since December. Defense News reports the Senate Armed Services Committee hasn't said when it might hold hearings again for nominations or any other business. The governors of Maryland and Virginia and the mayor of the district want federal employees to continue to telework for now, according to a new letter to the acting director of the Office of Personnel Management, Mike Regas. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, and D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser say their request is in response to guidance from OPM and the Office of Management and Budget about how to reopen the government. GovExec reports in the letter to Regas, the three leaders asked the federal government not to have employees come to work against any stay-at-home orders the localities have put in place. Two teams will get $100,000 each from the Army to develop emergency ventilators to fight COVID-19. The Army's Ventilator Challenge is an offshoot of its annual X-Tech search. Breaking Defense reports the Army's goal is to get 10,000 low-cost ventilators into hospitals within six to eight weeks. A new Defense Department assessment says the Navy should cut two aircraft carriers from the fleet and add dozens of man unmanned or lightly manned ships. The Navy calls the plan pre-decisional and is preparing its own force structure assessment. Commander Brian McGrath, U.S. Navy retired, is managing director at the Ferry Bridge Group. He was commander of the USS Bulkley from 2004 to 2006 and primary author of the 2007 edition of a cooperative strategy for 21st century air power. Brian, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on. What do you think about this idea? It sounds to me like essentially dueling force structure assessments, one from OSD and one from the Navy. It is. I think OSD has uh, an objective in mind. They want to change the force um, to reflect a, uh, a series of technologies that they have a lot of confidence in and, they, and, and that we should all have some confidence in, but that they have a little more confidence in like unmanned, uh, like advanced networking and the like. Uh, and they want to harvest the large uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carrier uh, in order to pay for those changes. The, the Navy, I believe, will, will probably um, uh, try and provide OSD with some of the goodness of what they're looking for, but they will uh, likely reinforce the role, the important and central role that the aircraft carrier plays in the deterrence of war, which is um, something that we haven't figured out uh, how to do better than it does yet. And that kind of gets at the crux of all of this. You've, we first became friends during a Twitter conversation among you, Brian Clark, and Jerry Hendricks, all talking about what the construction of the fleet should look like. We're, the, the statement you just made, I think, is the most important of all of these. We haven't figured out what else could do what the carrier group does. Are there even options on the table to consider this might be better or this might not be, or are there even not really any options to do what a carrier group does today? The, the plain truth of the matter is that the U.S. Navy spends 99.9% .9 of its time not killing people and wrecking things. It spends its time 
setting the conditions that make the decision to kill people and wreck things a bad one when made by anyone else. That's what deterrence is. The things that you use to deter another great power aren't always the same things that you would use to uh, in the teeth of a fight. The aircraft carrier has a considerable role in the deterrence of war. Once the shooting starts, the aircraft carrier has a different role. It will likely fight from further back, and as uh, progress is made closer in, it will come closer to the fight, and the air wing will be able to generate more power more often uh, from closer range. Uh, we just have to understand that navies also deter. They deter and they fight. OSD seems to be very much focusing on what happens once the shooting starts. Uh, I think that's short-sighted. We just have a couple of minutes left, Brian, and I want to shift gears. There's been a lot of discussion about what could happen or should happen to Captain Crozier as a result of the remarks that he made uh, about the sailors aboard the TR. Uh, and their exposure to coronavirus. I want to put you for a moment back on the bridge of a ship, not the TR necessarily, but a ship. Tell me what that looks like to somebody like me who's never worked the chain of command to work the chain of command when you see something that's a potential danger or risk to the sailors that you command. This is the great mystery of this uh, situation and one that I hope a Navy investigation will shed some light on. And that is, there are established communications channels at varying levels of, oh my, uh, through which a commanding officer can inform the chain of command all the way up to the president that something is amiss. Um, it's not clear the degree to which Captain Crozier chose one of those. So put me in Crozier's position uh, and, and reaching the same conclusions that Crozier did was that uh, he had an, an, a potential epidemic that would lead to the uh, um, a loss of life among his crew. Uh, my choice would have been, I, I think, my choice would have been to make the chain of command aware of these things uh, as vociferously and as aggressively as I could through the, through the uh, provided comms channels. Um, if I were not getting satisfaction and I saw things going high and right, I like to think I would have reached the same conclusion Crozier did, and I would have um, chosen some other uh, some other method. But I have to be convinced that uh, that he that he uh, fought the good fight through the established methods before he chose the methods he did. We have about 30 seconds left, Brian. Is that the decider then? Is that the piece of information that will determine which way you fall on this when we know that, if we ever know that? Yeah, absolutely. It's all about did he, did he go the distance with the established procedures? If he did and he was stonewalled and he, was, and, and he wasn't getting what he needed and then he chose um, to send the email, which I think he knew would be provided to the news media, uh, then I, I believe uh, if it's shown that he fought the good fight, then I'm on his side. Brian, thanks very much as always. It's terrific to have your insight. Thank you. Good to see you again. Stay healthy, please. Up next, the coronavirus impact on federal IT and your agency's report card. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what to expect from the next Fatara grades in June. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Agencies should get new Fatara scorecards in June. Those cards will reflect a period of turbulence and opportunity during response to the coronavirus. Richard Spires is principal at Richard A. Spires Consulting, former CIO of the Department of Homeland Security. Richard, it's great to see you, my friend. What are the takeaways that you think agency CIOs should be looking at now, anticipating these new Fatara scorecards coming in June? Well, we certainly are living in a turbulent environment for CIOs. Um, but I think in this environment that we actually have real opportunity. And uh, in fact, in some of the discussions I've had with a number of CIOs in government currently, you know, it's heartening to see that they are really trying to drive some digital transformation initiatives. Obviously, the, the first thing that's going on is this move to remote working. And it appears, at least anecdotally from what I'm hearing, to be, be going pretty well in most of the civilian agencies. So it's a real positive thing. And I don't know if that directly will affect the scorecards because there's not really measure for digital transformation. But to me, Francis, it's heartening to see a, a potential shift here in how federal government really views the use of technology moving forward. And I think a chance for CIOs to really step up and, and help their agencies. Well, I also think there's a terrific opportunity, Richard, for CIOs to be able to go to their leadership within the agency and then for those leaders to go to Congress and say, here is demonstrable proof of the investments that you've given us and how we've executed them that then should perpetuate itself. And it strikes me that you were used the word opportunity well, I think. Could this be an opportunity to get us out of the cycle of nipping and tucking around the edges with things like the MGT Act and and the working capital funds and really get into some major transformational efforts? I, I, I think so. Um, and in fact, you know, you hate to, wouldn't wish this crisis on, on any society, and obviously ours, but you know, there's also the chance here to really use this as a way to move government forward. Now, that's also a challenge to CIOs. I mean, FATARA was passed to give CIOs more authority, but that means they have to step up and they have to be true partners with agency leadership in defining ways in which we can digitally transform ourselves in an agency and take advantage of new technologies, new techniques. And it's great to see some of that, but we have a long way to go. But I think that the most valuable CIOs are the ones that can understand the business and mission of their agency and bring true digital solutions to bear to help. And to your point, if they can start to have some wins and, and show some real progress, I think we're also seeing a different attitude to your point of uh, rather than this being, you know, frankly, in, in small amounts of dollars, I mean, still millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in some cases of investment in IT to truly um, enabling agencies to transform themselves with significant investments. Uh, in new digital technologies. And I don't mean to belittle the money that's coming out of the working capital funds at all because they're all tremendously important projects, but you and I have talked on many occasions on and off the air, Richard, about the fact that a $30 million project here and a $15 million project there is not going to get the government as an enterprise where it needs to be. Who needs to do what to do what you just suggested, which is to really perpetuate this momentum to be able to turn it into something post-corona? Well, I, I think it really is uh, good agency planning. And uh, the CIO and, and his or her team need to be working closely with the mission leadership 
to lay out uh, plans and and you don't we don't want the big bang anymore, right? They've got to be way to you know incremental plans to drive enhanced value over time using digital technologies. And, and, and yet that's exactly what we need and, and what is best practice today. And, but to your point, you know, in large agencies, you know, $15 million at a time is not gonna get that done. There's just way too much legacy complexity that we have to deal with. A lot of what's going on today is layering smaller applications that are pulling from some of these old legacy applications, a lot of the data and, and you know, obviously making good progress and serving our citizens better, but to truly transform ourselves, you've got to start to take on these larger projects where you're actually going to retire some of these legacy systems that are holding us back from, um, from true digital transformations. One of the things that, one of the opportunities that I think agencies are starting to see is that they have the opportunity to do whatever it takes to meet the mission during this coronavirus situation. What perpetuates that mentality? What uh, embeds yeah. that into the culture of an organization so that we don't go back to business as usual the way it was before this happened, Richard? Yeah, that's a great question, Francis, and probably maybe the the real key because there, there's going to be this tendency to to revert. Um, you know, it's been hard. It's been hard to get agencies to change their culture, to be able to understand that they've got to get out of the old way of working. I think that's a really good. In some ways, it's a good thing that we're having to to work from home and. And that's trying to really change that that idea that hey, you don't all have to physically be together to get things done now, but we got to go a lot further. And to your point, I don't know if there's a magic answer here, and it's going to vary by agency. But if you can start to really show tremendous value with some of these uh, uh, digital transformation initiatives, and that's why it's so important that that CIOs don't just don't just stop at the remote work but really work with agencies. How can we quickly add value from a mission perspective? Okay, better improve services to our constituents, our citizens, um, whatever it may, more efficiency within our own internal processes and the way we work. These things have meaningful and they can really start to shift the view of how technology uh, and the role of technology is within an agency. And I saw that happen in my time at the IRS at four and a half years, there was no doubt we saw a significant shift in the leverage and the use of, of digital technologies uh, within the IRS and what that could mean to the agency mission. Richard, thanks as always. It's great to have your insight. Thank you very much, Francis. Up next, contact tracing and what it could mean for data. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a look at new technology and the implications for government and industry. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back to federal government and states across the country are making big changes to flatten the curve of COVID-19, but experts remain concerned about a second wave of coronavirus as researchers try to find a vaccine. The White House says contact tracing is one piece of a return to business as usual. Kirk Kern is chief technology officer at NetApp America. 
Kurt, thanks very much for coming on. What does contract tracing look like from a data perspective? What are companies and what does the government need to know about who's where? So uh, contact tracing is a longstanding practice where healthcare workers interview patients who have tested positive for a disease. They find out who that person may have been in contact with and then assess the exposure level. And then they attempt to mitigate the spread of that disease by contacting those individuals. Now, um, you know, it's been a core part of uh, con you know, de disease control measures for some time now, actually decades, and it's been used successfully to curtail the spread of things like uh, tuberculosis and Ebola, and then more recently SARS. Um, but because of the differences in, you know, some of the illnesses that are out there, um, you know, it's not effective everywhere. So, you know, diseases like foot and mouth and influenza, you know, they, um, they have not been as successful. And so what we find is that, uh, you know, the disease and its uh, reproduction ratio, sometimes called the r not factor, and other key factors like time are, uh, are, 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 are sometimes uh, cause, causing you to look at the, the virus differently. And so, you know, more specifically with COVID, you know, the elapsed time and the required to detect and quarantine that person before you can trigger that tracing process is critical. And so because this disease spread so rapidly, um, that process requires a human in the loop today. And so in order to do that contact identification, the interview, the contact listing and the follow up is too slow. And that's where we believe digital technology can help. You know, this is a very hot topic. You know, last week, the CDC announced that uh, contact tracing is a key strategy for preventing further spread of COVID-19. Uh, that, that means that, you know, we have you know, an immediate need for action. Uh, you know, I've begun some work with some, with some of the government agencies. And so we've also been involved uh, with the government as well as private sector. Uh, Google and Apple recently announced a collaboration where they're developing an app to do contact tracing. But if you look at the population of the U.S. today, there's roughly 330 million U.S. Uh, US citizens, and only about 80% of those citizens carry a smartphone. And so that leaves about 66 million people that don't have or cannot use that service that's being generated in the private sector. And so I think it's really a need or a call for a national system to support and protect all citizens, you know, both their privacy rights as well as our physical well-being against coronavirus, and then any of these new virus threats that may emerge in the future. And so, you know, if I had to draw a parallel to that and other government programs that, that is out there, I think we could uh, we could model something uh, that's based off of the National Weather Service, right? The National Weather Service produces uh, weather forecasts on a daily basis, and then they also generate disaster warnings for things like tornadoes and hurricanes. And so if we built something like that, you know, I clearly it would be a big data challenge, um, but that's one technology area where I think we, we can help. You know, we, we understand how we can do cross-agency sharing of information and federation of data. And so, you know, we can look at, you know, potentially con constructing something like a large data fabric or maybe building a big data lake or data ocean to contain all this information. One of the places where agencies like HHS and VA and others that handle a lot of health information data are very sensitive is about data sovereignty, who owns it and what they do with it, and privacy. What are the implications for both of those issues on the kind of data that would be in a data like like you just alluded to? Yeah, so you know, you know, even with a non-digital process, the patient privacy is protected. Uh, contacts are informed that they may have been exposed to a patient with an infection, but they are not told the identity of that patient who may have exposed them. So in data management, we have several solutions that can be used to protect that public data. You know, we have anonymization algorithms that can protect a, a citizen, and it basically hides that person's name by replacing it with an ID. Uh, we also have to be careful when we expose that data, however, that in those other fields, 
Uh, you can't create an association between that ID and that person's information, so we still have to protect that person's identity. Uh, that's where we can use uh, technologies like encryption, and so we can protect a person's data so that only an authorized person with the correct software key uh, can unlock and view that data. And then finally, we have a concept of metadata in the data management space, where we create metadata and tags about that information or an object, and that encapsulates the information about the data without actually exposing the data. And so, you know, I, I think um, there's a lot of data repositories out there where we can touch uh, all of that information, but then we have to worry about the regulations. We'll have HIPAA, PII, PII, CCPA, and I'm sure there's some other, uh, you know, protection acts that are out there that's not top of mind in this interview right now. So, you know, externally, I think the technology as a whole has a responsibility to the public and how we use data, you know, responsibly and respectfully. In the case of the cell data from private sector, you know, I think we have a responsibility to keep that information secure and comply with all the strict regulations that are out there. Kurt, there's a lot more, but we're unfortunately out of time. Thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Awesome, thank you for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government, anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.